Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Opposition Cast. Coming to you a little later in the week than normal following the bank holiday weekend, but we hope to be back on schedule for the next episode. So as we head into September, children have started going back to school, some of us have started venturing back to our offices, at least occasionally, and at Westminster MPs and peers are back from the summer recess. My Lords, the uh, hybrid sitting of the House will now begin. Let me say first of all, um, a welcome back and good morning to you. With the beginning of a new parliamentary year, it's perhaps appropriate that our topic this week involves quite a bit of discussion of parliamentary opposition. But instead of focusing on the Commons, we've turned our attention to the other end of the Palace of Westminster to talk a bit about opposition in the House of Lords. My guest is a very distinguished figure who I could also refer to as my boss, given that she now serves as our chairman at the Centre for Opposition Studies. Jan Royal began her political career in the 1980s, when she spent six years working as General Secretary of the British Labour Group of MEPs in the European Parliament. She then went to work for Neil Kinnock when he was leader of the Labour Party, and remained with him in the lead of the opposition's office throughout his tenure in that job. When he stood down and went to Brussels as an EU commissioner, she returned to her European political roots and worked for him during his time there as Vice President of the Commission. She entered the House of Lords in 2004 as Baroness Royal of Blaisden, and four years later was appointed to the Cabinet by Gordon Brown, becoming Chief Whip and then Leader of the House of Lords. After Labour's defeat in 2010, she stayed on as Leader of the Opposition in the House of Lords for the next five years under Ed Miliband's leadership, before stepping down after the election of 2015. She's now begun a new life in academia as Principal of Somerville College, Oxford. We spoke last week via Zoom about all of her experiences in politics, about Europe and about why it's important to study opposition. But I began by asking her, first of all, how she came to work for Neil Kinnock. It's quite extraordinary, really. I was in the early 80s working for Labour members in the European Parliament. And that involved spending a week a month in Strasbourg and a few days a month in Brussels. Uh, which was fine. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, but I had I started to have a family. So I had one child and that was okay. But when I had two ch- children, well, when I knew I was going to have two children, it would, I knew that it would be unmanageable, but also unfair to my husband and my children. So I was looking for another job. And I knew Charles Clark rather well. And Charles said that Neil was looking for someone to work for him. And that was it. But I started working for Neil as his constituency secretary. But at the time, he was also much engaged with European policy and thinking about how he was going to turn around the party's policy on Europe. And Europe had been my life, my political life. The Labour Party in Europe are the two great themes of my life. So it worked rather well. And you were originally his constituency secretary, but um, I think eventually moved on to sort of take a more strategic role on sort of diary management as leader as well. How was the leader's office at at that that time? So it's always a small team. Did you find that it was overburdened with the the task of running a political party, particularly at that time? Yes, it was. Everybody worked enormously hard, but it was a really coherent team. It was a sort of mutually dependent team. Um, And you have to really both like and admire the person for whom you're working because you know you're giving them your life in a way but you also have to firmly believe in the 
ethos, but also the aspiration to get to government. You have to believe that you know, the imperative is to get to government. You have to believe that in helping the individual and helping the party to get to government, that's going to make a difference. And uh, I began, I think I began working for Neil in, with Neil in uh, 1986, which was an interesting time, just past um, minor strike, etc., etc. But gradually, we became more and more optimistic, as, as one does in opposition, which was quite right. And he was sort of doing great reforms with Charles Clark in terms of the NEC, etc. But on the European front, 1989 was a really great high watermark when we did we had fantastic results in the European elections and so that was the sort of thing that propelled us forward because clearly 1987 was not a great election year. Well you say it wasn't a great election but I think what people forget about that election is that Labour was really fighting for survival. I mean there was a real possibility with what happened in, in 83 that the Labour Party could actually, if the alliance had done particularly well, could have fallen to, to third place. So I think that there's sometimes a, a bit of retrospective kind of judgment that goes on about the, the, the state of the party. I mean, was that a sense that, that you had, that the Labour Party was, was really fighting for survival? And, and, and also the, the election in, in 87 was commended in some ways for being much more professional than, than it had been in, in the past perhaps the, the, the influence of Peter Mandelson in professionalising some of the communications and so on. But, but it was a kind of make or break election. So, I mean, it was, do you think there was some degree to which it was a success? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, it, it was a success. But you go into an election sort of, you know, you really, really want to win. It, it was such a vast, vast mountain to climb. But you're right that it enabled the Labour Party to hold its head up as a party of, as the party of opposition, which was hugely important. It also defined Neil's leadership in a way, and it gave people confidence in his ability to continue to bring about change. And for us to, together with the professionalisation that, that Peter was responsible for, we could start to look like a party of government because you know we did not look like a party of government in 1983 and the electors quite rightly decided that we were not a party of government in 1983 and the tide started gradually turning. And a lot of the work that Neil did was around um, a policy review and across the, the field of policy making um, quite substantial changes to the party's platform. I'd imagine that for you having such an interest in Europe one of the most significant things that you will have found um, that he did was a change in the, the Labour Party's attitude towards the European community as it then was. We went from a position where in 1983 the manifesto was to pull out, it was a, a Brexit manifesto in 1983, um, through to a position in the late 80s into the 90s where Labour became very much the party of Europe. That was a huge change but it must have been one that you, you welcomed. It was wonderful and I welcomed it from a, a policy perspective but because I just I fundamentally believe that this was the right thing for us to do. It's the right thing for our country. I also thought it was the right thing for, the, for what was still the EC. But I had had this sort of weird existence working for Labour members of the European Parliament, in which at one stage we had 18 members, nine of whom were in favour of the European Union and nine of whom wanted to leave the European Union. So it was this, you know, just weird existence. And that's how it was in the Labour Party. 
but gradually the kind of anti-European rump grew smaller and Neil's policy change, you know, really made the most enormous dif- difference to our country and to the European Union. When we actually came to government in 1997, we were able to play a really active role in the European Union. But I think what it demonstrated was Neil's ability to connect with all the other social democratic or democratic socialist parties throughout the European Union. And that was very important to us as an opposition at the time, because it gave us support, sustenance, and again, it kind of gave Neil a role on the, on the European stage. And your time working for the, the Labour members of the European Parliament was then followed, I think, after you left Neil's office in Westminster. You, you went back to, to Brussels, didn't you? <laughs> what, 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 was, uh, what was your role then? I worked in Neil's cabinet. I was person responsibility for the relationship between the cabinet and uh, transport in many ways, transport directorate and the European Parliament. And then I had many other responsibilities, as one does. So I did things like social policy, international development, a plethora of other policies. And in the transport portfolio, I was responsible for public transport. So it was an absolute joy. But again, it enabled me to work with Neil on the kind of on the wider pan-European kind of socialist policies. And that for me was a delight. But it was it was a great time to be working in the Commission. It was a time of optimism. It was a time when social democrats in the European Union were parties of government or in coalition in government. And we were part of it. I mean, we spoke a couple of weeks ago on the podcast to my colleague Stuart Smedley at King's, who's writing his thesis on British attitudes towards the European Union and towards European integration over the course of Britain's membership. And it's clearly with, with the Brexit referendum having happened in, in 2016, it's, it's a fascinating sort of turnaround from 1975 when uh, British membership was endorsed in a referendum to 2016 when narrowly voted um, to leave. But clearly Euroscepticism has been something which in both parties has played a, a role, as we, we just mentioned. You know, the Labour Party was very much anti um, the, the European um, community for a, a period of time, and then it became more of a Conservative thing. Looking at it from the perspective of, of opposition, I suppose, what is it that you think has, has driven this sort of increase in Euroscepticism over this period of time? And is there, is there something more that the European community and the European Union could have done over that period of time? to try and stem that? Because one of the things that we, we talked to Stuart about was this, this is not just a British phenomenon. Um, this, this is something which has happened in other countries as well. Is there more that the European Commission particularly, having sort of worked in it, you think could have done to have been more flexible and to try and counter some of, some of the opposition that there has been to European integration? I think that the European Commission, the Council, the Parliament, they should have listened more to the people. And there are still many of my friends and colleagues in the European Union, of which we're no longer members, um, who are still talking about what the answer is more Europe. And I don't think that the answer is more Europe. And I'm not sure that, that the answer has ever been simply more Europe. People felt that the people were kind of 
you know, the bureaucrats living in the golden cage in um, gilded cage in Brussels were driving ahead the, the project without listening to them and their concerns. And to some extent that was true. And some of the policies that came out of the European Union, which of course were essentially driven by the member state governments because it is the council that is fundamentally in control. I mean, policies of austerity harmed people. And there were certain things that the populists uh, latched onto with their simplistic answers to complex questions. I mean, simplistic answers, for example, in relation to immigration. And I don't think that policymakers in the European Union listened to their concerns and tried really to answer their concerns. And do you think that was perhaps where David Cameron's approach was, was flawed in the sense that one of the criticisms that, that, that was made of him was that he came back with a very thin deal and the expectations have perhaps been risen um, too, too high. But is it not possible that you could have had a situation where there was more flexibility, that he might have been able to negotiate more freedoms and flexibility for the UK? Is that something which they perhaps didn't appreciate was, was important? I think that they should and could have been more flexible. Obviously, that would have assisted us greatly and we would, we would still be a member of the European Union. But I think in retrospect, it would have helped them as well in their relationship with their own citizens and the rise of populism in their own countries. So I definitely think that they could and should have shown more flexibility. And one of the things that in, in the Brexit campaign is that we allowed, and David Cameron allowed, the populists to seize the, seize the arguments. And we all knew what pro-Europeans were against in terms of Brexit. But I don't think that we provided people with a clear vision as to what remaining in the European Union should be and would be. I suppose it's perhaps one of the lessons um, of sort of politics as it, as it operates between government and opposition, that it's, it's perhaps easier to run an insurgent campaign uh, telling people what you're against and to um, motivate them to vote against something than perhaps it is to um, extol the virtues of something. Is, is, is that one of the things that explains the, the, the Leave result, that actually it's easier to, to motivate people against something than it is to, to, to present a nuanced kind of responsible case for, for remaining? Yeah, uh, yeah certainly. Uh, and it explains why the, the populists, because that's what the Brexiteers are. They're absolute. I mean, there are a few people who for many, many years, for many reasons, have been against our membership of the European Union. And I kind of can respect some of their views, but there is an awful lot of people who kind of jumped onto the populist bandwagon. And the way in which they, they seized on these awful, awful arguments for leaving the European Union, as you said, entirely negative, but also they, they latched on to the kind of the, the immigration issues, and they, they brought together the immigration issues with the pictures of Syrian refugees and suggest that all these people were going to come into to Britain if, 
if we had remained a member of the European Union. And I do think you're right that the pro-European campaign, it focused on the negatives and it, it, it did not talk about the positives and the way in which it should have done, because it was easy. And also, everybody thought, oh, we're going to win this campaign. There was no real understanding of the fact that it was all on a knife edge. And you talked about sort of people who had long-standing views that we you were sceptic or you know hostile to the European integration. Going back to those Labour members of the European Parliament that you worked with um, in the in the eighties, I mean, what was their worldview? What was their basis? I mean, the the, the phrase from sort of Tony Benn and the sort of um, the left of the Labour Party was very much this is a capitalist club, you know, this is a free marketeer kind of uh, construct. Was it that kind of view that was prevalent amongst those Eurosceptics in, in the Labour Party in, in uh, Strasbourg and, and Brussels? It was, it was very much this is a capitalist club. We don't want to be part of it. And they prefaced everything they said by uh, saying we are internationalists. We want to cooperate with our, our friends in the European Union, which is very much what the Brexiteers say. Um, however, it would be inappropriate for us to be a member of that club. And we would not, as a country, be able to do all the things that we know that we need to do in order to flourish both socially and economically. Mm. And, and what really changed? I mean, we talked about the fact that the Labour Party moved and change its position to um, to be much more pro-European. But I mean, what changed in the mindset of a lot of people? Because there were there were sort of diehards who remained quite Eurosceptic. But I think you know a lot of people moderated their views. Was it that the European project started to look less like a sort of capitalist club and more like a sort of social democratic kind of pan-European social democracy? <laughs> was it that? Was it that? I mean, it's it's an interesting thing that perhaps Margaret Thatcher was hoping that this was going to be a capitalist club, um, and that the single market was going to sort of represent Thatcherism on a European scale, and then started to see more kind of integrationist policies and 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 greater coordination of. Um, of social programs that perhaps she wasn't comfortable with. So was it, was it that kind of change that actually they, they recognised that this was a project which actually was more sympathetic to their, their ideals? Yes. I mean, the social dimension came to the fore for the first time and the social pillar. And there was spending uh, on things that people deeply cared about. Um, and, you know, Delors, I think Delors' speech to the TUC, it was a game changer. And we, those of us who believed that it was, a, you know, this is the future for, for our country, was definitely with, within the European Union, could demonstrate that um, it, the European Union could, would and should have a, an, both an economically and social impact on their lives and I mean what Neil has always talked about since he became well always always but certainly since he was leader of the opposition that the the sort of marriage between the economy and social policy that you have to have a strong economy in order to be able to deliver good social policy um, and it looked at that time as if the European Union that was their belief as well you needed both things Interesting. Um, so you've spent a, a long time working um, with Neil, both as, as leader of the opposition and then his time in, in Brussels. He's very self-critical um, about um, his responsibility for 
not winning the election, particularly in 1992. You know, having worked closely with him, and as you said, respected him enormously. Do you think he's being unduly harsh um, about his, uh, his culpability for that? He always says that people just couldn't imagine him as prime minister and that that was something that he couldn't do very much about. What are your views on that? Do you, do you, do you think that he had a, a problem with his public perception? Yeah, I mean, he is too harsh on himself, much too harsh on himself. And yes, there was a public perception, which was nurtured by the press of this country. Um, And so it it was always, always going to be an uphill struggle. I mean, the fact of the matter is we so, so nearly got there, but didn't quite make it. Um, He... He was not the sort of politician that had been a prime minister. There'd never been a prime minister quite like him before. I suppose um, he didn't go to Oxford like like uh, Wilson. He wasn't like Callaghan. So I think it, it, he was he was literally trying to break the mould, and the mould wasn't quite broken. And I'm not sure that he he would fare well now either because now politics has taken an even more different direction in terms of leadership and what people want now is people who are mediatic i mean that's got to be one of the the most sadly people look at the way in which they come across as superstars in the media and neil is certainly charismatic but I don't know that he would ever get to be prime minister now. He should have been prime minister in 1992. That's not what I'm saying. He definitely should have been, and this country would be a much, much better place if he had been. But having said that, on a positive note, I firmly believe that if, if there hadn't been Neil Kinnock, there would not have been Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. There would not have been a Labour government in 1997. Well, this is, the, this is the point that people make about his role as leader of the Labour Party, that it's not ultimately, of course, the objective is to win the election. That's your ultimate test. But there are ways of being a successful leader of the opposition that take you a long way that don't necessarily reach that bar. And I think certainly if you look at the Labour Party in 1983 versus how it was in 1992, it's, it, was, it was unquestionably was transformed from being, um, you know, at risk of its very existence, and particularly at risk of, of losing its place as the main opposition party, to being the, um, the almost the the expected next government um, in 1992. So, I mean, you said you think that he is too harsh on himself. In terms of his qualities of leadership as leader of the Labour Party and leader of the opposition, presumably you would rate him quite highly in, in terms of how he, he managed to, to bring about that turnaround in Labour's fortunes. Oh my God, I would, I would rate him, you know, I, I hold him in the highest possible regard in every way, including his leadership qualities, because uh, he, he brought people together from, disparate, from different sides of the, the party, essentially. And he kind of, not quite forged a coalition, but, but he brought an understanding within the Labour Party. Most people understood that there were certain things that we had to change in order to become a credible opposition and therefore a party that looked like that had the policies for and was kind of 
professional enough to become a party of government. And he did that. He absolutely did that. There were great people around him, like, you know, Charles Clark, who, who helped enormously, but it would not have happened without, without Neil. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I rate him in the highest possible way. And having worked for a leader of the opposition, um, you then um, went into um, government, uh, into the House of Lords and, um, and joined the cabinet. How different did you find the experience of, of being in government um, to sort of your previous experience working in European Parliament and then sort of in, in opposition? How different was that for you? Um, how different was it? Um, it? What's great about being in government is that you can do things that you believe in, you can make a difference. And the thing about opposition is the, the lack of, of power to bring about change. You, in opposition, you are forging policies which you believe could and should be implemented in order to, to bring about profoundly needed change but you can't do it. Opposition, it's crap. <laughs> it's really important um, as a time to, you know, put your policies together, bring people together, but you don't need very long to do that. You certainly don't need, you know, 10 plus years, which is what we've had now. Enough, enough, enough. And then suddenly to be part of government and to have that power that I'd sort of yearned for, to be part of having the power that I'd yearned for for all those years. You know, I, I was there, not quite at the heart of government under Tony Blair, but I was there. I was, a, I was a, on the ministerial benches and many of my friends uh, were Secretary of State at the time. And it was just a, a huge pleasure and an honour. But it was also interesting to see at first hand how the cogs of government work, because when you're in opposition, you don't really know how it works. You don't really know how the civil service functions. I'm sure that some of my colleagues, Charles Clark knew very well because he'd had lots and lots of conversations, but people like me didn't really understand. And then suddenly to have, you know, civil servants who could, well, who would brief you, prepare things. But that's another thing because at first, when I became a very junior minister, you know, you get all your briefs from the uh, civil servants and your instinct is quite understandably to follow them. But as you get more confidence, then not only do you question civil servants, which is absolutely right and proper, but when you are faced in, in the chamber answering questions or participating in a, a debate, you get the confidence to deviate from the civil servants position. And that, that was very exciting. And you, um, you became leader of the House of Lords, as you say, under Gordon Brown. And the House of Lords is a strange beast. Uh, whatever you think of arguments for reform, it's, it's very different to the, the dynamics of the House of Commons. You almost have a, a constant sort of opposition there, whatever party you are, because they, they have a mind of their own. Did, did, did you find that the, the job of, of leading this, the House of Lords was a, a difficult thing to do where you, you know, you don't have the same degree of control as you do if you are um, leading the House of Commons, for example. Yeah, it is a particular challenge. And one of the challenges is to explain to your colleagues in the cabinet, especially the prime minister, why you haven't succeeded in, in winning votes or rather why you have lost 
key critical votes. Not losing votes is never a joy, but it is. It, it was a kind of joy in a way because in the House of Lords, it's that kind of consensual politics with which I feel very comfortable. It's bringing people together. It, it's winning arguments. It's bringing people on side. And I think that that's a really um, special part of the House of Lords, the, the ability that one has to forge different relationships and bring people together for the greater good. And that's a good thing. And of course, in, in 2010, the Labour government lost and we had the the coalition taking office. You went from being a, a cabinet minister and from being leader of the House of Lords to being leader of the opposition in the House of Lords. You've got any reflections on sort of what that experience? You, you said opposition is, is is crap and it's a <laughs> not a great experience, but but the the transition from being in government, being a member of the cabinet, to to, to losing office, how is that experience? Well you lose the infrastructure of government apart from anything else. You have the great kind of, it truly is a sadness when you lose an election, but suddenly you were on your own. You didn't have the civil service and it is a Rolls Royce civil service. You didn't have them around you. And we in the office of the leader of the opposition, we had to craft a new office. We had to find people who, who would work on legislation, think about policy, do all the comms. And it's a, it's a big enterprise trying to put together a team that could service, as it were, the benches of the House of Lords. And the frustrations were mighty. So, so it is true, sort of, as, as a lot of um, leaders of the opposition sort of in the Commons say, that when you take on the job, you're basically having to build a machine from scratch. There isn't this sort of... Uh, Rolls-Royce machine there waiting to, to serve you as, as, as leader. At, at the time you were first in opposition uh, after the, the 2010 election, of course there was this sort of this period of time uh, before the leadership election had concluded and Ed Miliband took over when Harriet Harman was acting leader of the opposition in, in the Commons. So did the two of you have um, frequent discussions on how to adapt to this? Um, she was having to cope with the, that transition in the Commons and you were coping with it in the Lords. Was, was that something that you formed a, a mutual support group on? No, not, not really. I mean, I've, I know Harriet very well and we would talk from time to time, but we, actually, we had very different tasks and roles in a way because both government, but especially opposition in the Commons and in the Lords is very different. But it took a, a while to enable, to help people understand, in, people in the Commons understand the difference between opposition in the Lords and opposition in the Commons. Also, on, on the Labour benches in the Lords at the time, there'd been, there were people there, wonderful, wonderful colleagues who were veterans of opposition in the 80s, for example. And the Lords had changed quite substantially since, since that time. And so it was sort of learning from their expertise, but trying to change things uh which we did but there was there was a lot of expertise to build on but we had to do things anew afresh that must be one of the benefits you have in in the lords is that you've got um as you say people who've done various jobs 
um, over the years, but you've got a huge amount of experience of people who've also been ministers. Um, and so when you're opposing the government and you're, you're mounting an opposition to them, you've got a lot of institutional memory to, to draw on to do that, both in government and opposition. That must have been a help. Did you sort of make use of them in any sort of structured way or was it more uh, sort of informal consultations in the tea room? No, it was, it was, I'm not sure I would say structured, but we did have constant conversations with people who, who'd been in government to make use of them. And of, of course, colleagues who'd been secretaries, former secretaries of state, former ministers, they, were, they wanted to be active. They wanted to do things. They wanted to question the government. They wanted to hold the government to account. Um, and they were all hyperactive, as it were. So it wasn't difficult to have their advice and guidance constantly and I think that we had some great victories uh, when between 2010 and 2015 which was an immensely challenging time because of the coalition usually when you go into house uh, opposition the house of lords you can think oh well I should be able to win more votes against the government because you know you'd have the Lib Dems for example and Labour working together which is what they've got now but suddenly, in 2010, we were confronted with this position whereby it was going to be extraordinarily difficult to win arguments and win votes. Um, so that was a major, major challenge. So the arithmetic was, was kind of against you in a way that perhaps we hadn't seen in the House of Lords before. It was. Um, but over that period of time, as you say, from 2010 to 2015, as you were um, leader of the opposition in, in the Lords, did you have the same kind of challenges in, in trying to convince your colleagues uh, or to explain to your colleagues the, the particular character of, of the Lords in terms of how you, you approach um, issues? Because there's a difference in, in how you approach uh, legislation if you're the government, but also I assume there's differences in, in how you oppose as well. You know, in the House of Commons, there's clearly uh, a range of tools that you have to uh, to try and uh, and challenge the government, but in the House of Lords, you possibly have a few more. You may not be able to win quite as many votes as you might ordinarily in opposition there. But do you think your your colleagues understood sort of what, how difficult your task was there? Yes, I think in, in two thousand and ten, it's fair to say that there was still little understanding within the shadow cabinet, as there had been in the cabinet, about the realities of the House of Lords and what it could, in essence, deliver for, um, for Labour. I think that's changed fundamentally now. And I think Angela Smith has done the most fantastic job of nurturing understanding within the Shadow Cabinet. And there are great, great re working relationships. But in 2010, it, it was quite difficult. Um, but you know, gradually over that kind of five-year period of opposition, people did grow to understand essentially the power of the House of Lords if we marshaled it in the correct way. One of the difficulties was um, with colleagues who, who came from the House of Commons who didn't quite understand, and there's no reason why they should, this is not a criticism, but they did not understand the different way in which the House of Lords worked and that in order to bring about change and to win votes you know you had to work in a different way and you had to work in a consensual way which was very different to the way in which they worked in the house of commons um did, how much um independence did you 
have as, as leader of the, the, the Labour peers, essentially. Um, there, there is almost a kind of separation there, isn't there? And I think we saw that particularly in the last five years under Jeremy Corbyn, that the, the, the Labour Lords, I think, became a rather semi-detached uh, part of the, the party. Um, I imagine that you had a much closer working relationship with, with Ed Miliband and with, uh, with the wider Shadow Cabinet, but there is a degree of autonomy there, isn't there? between, you know, you are essentially, well, you are leader of the opposition, you are leader of the opposition in the House of Lords. So how does that work? Because it's quite a, a delicate relationship, even if it wasn't quite as tricky as, as your successor might have had it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, undoubtedly, it must be a complete bloody nightmare for Angela. But I, and, and the Lords are wanting UDI, as it were. Um, but she, she kept everything on an even keel, just extraordinary. Um, in 2010, 2015, I think that there was kind of mutual respect. And so I was given a huge amount of leeway, really. And because we delivered on various things in various ways, then that increases the respect for the way in which we're doing things. And we work really rather closely, I would say, with um, Ed's office and well, the office of the leader of the opposition and with members of the Shadow Cabinet. It took a lot of work, but it was worth doing to bring about change, to stop some of the excesses of the coalition, I would say. Mm. And, and, and how did that work in practice? I mean, as you've got obviously Shadow Cabinet meetings every week where presumably you look, look ahead at the business that's, that, that's coming forward in both houses, but you have to have a, an approach to the whipping in the Commons, you have to have an approach to either the whipping or, or, or whatever the, the decision is on, on how you're approaching legislation in, in the Lords. So on a kind of week-by-week -week basis, would you be working with shadow teams on particular pieces of legislation and, and, and how you were going to approach those? Or you know, where was the initiative coming from for, for how you were approaching them? One of the most important meetings of the week at that time, and I've got no doubt that it still is, is this the meeting between business managers of the Lords and the Commons. So it brings together the leaders, but also the two chief whips and some of the other whips. Because it, as you say, it's important that the whipping is in sync um, in both houses. And from time to time, it will deviate, not very often, but that's where lots of the decisions are taken about the attitude towards various amendments and, and what to be doing. That, that meeting is key, that business managers meeting. And, and that's the, what we would describe as the usual channels, presumably. That's the, uh, yeah. So that's the, 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 the leaders of, of both houses from government and opposition. And, and, and how, the chief whips. And, 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 and the whips in both, in, in both houses. Um, there have been occasions where um, some of the um, the whipping arrangements have become quite controversial. Did, did you ever have any situations where that relationship uh, between the usual channels started to fray a bit? Well, sometimes decisions were extremely difficult, but personal relationships are important and they can get you through the kind of very difficult times when, uh, you know, you just have to argue it out, which, which direction is best to go in but you're right I mean it seems such a such a long time ago all the decisions in relation to Lord's reform and Nick Clegg's proposed legislation I mean that was a complete nightmare really um, and I think that it demonstrates 
just how difficult the whole issue of Lord's reform is. And I think it will be for quite a long time. And over the, the course of, um, of those five years, um, working with Ed Miliband as leader, how would you rate him? Um, I'm not going to be uh, I'm not going to be unkind and ask you to draw comparisons between him and Neil. Um, but I mean, Neil was a very different leader for different times, but um, facing some of the same challenges. I mean, particularly on things like media coverage and the the kind of hostile media that he he faced, uh, and some of the same criticisms that he faced as well. Did you have a sense that, that there was sort of history repeating itself in a, in a way that um, this was a leader who was facing an uphill struggle and was, was doing his best, but ultimately was unsuccessful? Did that um, give you a sense of deja vu? Yes. Uh, cometh the man, cometh the hour. It was a very different period in Labour's history. And I think for Ed or for whoever had become leader of the opposition after our being in power for such a long time would have been enormously challenging because there's nobody left to blame but the Labour government. And that makes life extremely difficult. And it's the kind of decisions as to how insurgent one should become and how to take the party with you. It, it was very, very, very different times, very different men and very different ways of dealing with things. And how do you sort of rate his performance? You talked about sort of this, this difficult challenge of, um, of how insurgent to be. And you know, he was given this, this label by some of the, the tabloids as Red Ed, um, which perhaps in retrospect, might not have been justified given what happened afterwards. But, um, you know, he, he did face this, this very hostile media, but he, he also was trying to move the, as he would describe it, trying to move the centre ground further to, to the left and believe that was something that was possible to do. How do you rate his strategy in terms of what he was trying to do? Was it something that was overly ambitious or, or was, he, was he making a, a reasonable case that, that just didn't, didn't gel with the electorate? I think that it wasn't overly ambitious, but I think we, you know, we got things wrong. He got things wrong. We all got things wrong. I don't think he was wrong in trying to sort of move the, the, the party. But I think our fundamental mistake was in not countering the Tories' narrative about the global economic crisis. We allowed that to take hold and we never counted it as we should have done. And that, that became the narrative of weeks, months, years. And it was just a travesty of the truth. And I think you know, if we'd done more about that, then that would have been better. These were such difficult, difficult times. And then you know, we had austerity. And I think that we did not counter the narratives about austerity strongly enough either. So opposition obviously is the focus of, um, of this podcast, but also of the Centre for Opposition Studies. And you very kindly, uh, a few years ago, agreed to become the, the chairman of uh, the Centre for Opposition Studies and to uh, take on a role uh, with us. Why do you think that opposition is an important thing to be studied? And, um, and why do you think that it's, it's not been? I mean, you have a obviously a very prestigious role in academia yourself now. And in my small way, I see it in, uh, in, in academia in, 
political studies. It's not something that people really focus on in the same way they focus on government. Um, and I wonder whether you had any thoughts about why that is. I think that there's, there's still not a real understanding of the, the importance of the role of oppositions, and specifically, I would say, of a loyal opposition. Uh, and I fundamentally believe that a good government requires a strong opposition. And I think that that view, I think the, the government we had from 2015 until now, specifically, we have seen the consequences of having a weak, weak opposition and a government that was able to do whatever it liked. So I think that opposition is hugely important and most people in this country understand the role of the importance of the role of holding governments to account, questioning the government, but they don't, in many countries, they don't have that tradition, as it were, and therefore that accountability of governments is not there. And that's where I think that issues like corruption uh, are able to take root and flourish because there's nobody there to question the government in the way in, in which is right and proper. Uh, and opposition is also a time to a government in waiting to prepare its plans, to prepare it, 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 its vision. So I think opposition is a hugely important time, but it can be too long, of course. Um, but they fulfill a very important role in the governance of countries. And I hope that this, the Centre for Opposition Studies, and I'm very, very proud to be associated with it, it can do a lot more work so that there is a body of academic studies which will enable parties and governments in other countries to better understand the role of opposition so that their governance is improved greatly. So we've got a huge task ahead, Nigel, a huge task. Well, we should probably get on with it. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed for joining us on the podcast. Okay. Thank you, Nigel. Baroness Royal there, giving me perhaps a gentle hint to get back to work, which is maybe not inappropriate given this is the back-to-school edition of Opposition Cast. And I'd like to thank Jan very much for sparing the time to speak to us and to share her unique insights into two very different, but perhaps in some ways rather similar periods of opposition for the Labour Party uh, and her experiences in the different roles that she took uh, in each of them. I think, as she said, we do have uh, a difficult task ahead of us in raising the awareness of opposition as a, a topic within political studies. It's kind of what we're trying to do with this podcast, in a way, is to show a little bit of um, how interesting and broad this topic is just even in the British context, which is really the, the focus um, of this series. But it is something which has remained quite understudied, and um, the focus on government, although it's understandable, has become so dominant that it, it really is no comparison. Um, we have whole departments of, of government and institutes of government, our dear friends over at the IFG, uh, who do fantastic work uh, with their teams of researchers, um, and certainly we're no match for them. And that perhaps in itself indicates the dis disparity between the study of opposition 
and the study of government, that it just isn't seen as important. And I think in her closing remarks there, um, at the end of the interview, Jan really gave a very succinct explanation as to why certainly I think that opposition is a very important topic to be studied and that it's got an awful lot to teach um, about the importance of good governance rather than just looking solely at the institutions and activity of the government. Um, I think opposition as an institution in its own right plays a role in the British system um, and in other countries as well um, where they have a free opposition. Studying how that works and its impact on the general governance of a country is really important. So I'm grateful to her for having uh, joined us, but also for, in particular, for giving such a um, a brilliant uh, exposition of, of why opposition studies itself is important. Um, hopefully you agree to some extent um, to have made it to the end of this podcast and to have perhaps listened to some of the others. If you have enjoyed it, then please do share with other people who might find it of interest. Subscribe to it on um, Spotify, iTunes or wherever it is that you're listening to us um, and leave a, a good review so that more people will be able to find us um, on the algorithm. Algorithms are getting a bit of a bad name recently, but in, certainly in the way that podcasts work, the more love you show us online, the more people will get to hear these words of wisdom. But for now, that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much for joining me. Look after yourselves, and I'll see you soon. My Lord, the time allowed for this question has elapsed. The question is that the House do now adjourn. As many as of that opinion will say content, the country not content, the contents have it. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Opposition, it's crap. <laughs>